0: Hello, everybody. It's your old pals, Josh and Chuck, and you will have the chance to see us live in person for the first time in two years, Friday, January 21st in San Francisco. Right, Chuck?
1: That's right. We're returning to the stage at SketchFest. We're very excited about it. We can't wait to see everyone. It is a Vax-only show. Bring your Vax card. It is a mask-only show. Bring that mask. Can't wait to see a third of your faces.
0: That's right. You can get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. And again, Friday, January 21st, 7.30 p.m., Sidney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco, California. We will see you there.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bright, and Jerry's over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Let's get to it, friends. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's right, but hey, we have a bit of an announcement that I'm excited about. Me too. We have added a new writer to the stable, Mm -hmm. uh, Livia Gershon, and this is Livia's first effort Mm -hmm. and how we're doing it, you know, because we've we've never really onboarded people because... uh, Mm -hmm. Dave and Edward, colleagues of ours from the House Stuff Works days. Right. So we thought maybe, you know, we'd give someone an article, not, a, I mean, sort of as a tryout, but just to make sure that it was a good fit. Sure. And Livia killed it right out of the block. And she's super talented as a writer and obviously very smart and great at research. And like I know, both speaking for both of us, we're just very excited to have Livia on board. Yep. And uh, yeah. So thanks, Livia. And yeah. welcome to the. Uh, To the family. Welcome aboard, Livia. If you went to high school with Livia, now would be a good time to email her. Say, (laughs) hey,
0: I didn't know you were writing for Stuff You Should Know. She'd be like, oh, that, yeah.
1: But this is a kind of fun one, uh, I think, as a first assignment, too, for her, because it's uh, a little different in that it wasn't just one one really deep dive on one single thing. Right. Watch, she's going to bomb that when we give her that next one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually three things in one uh, I had the idea of uh, court stenography but then I was like you know what maybe uh, that's not quite enough but I didn't want to do it as a shorty mm-hmm. so I thought let's just expand it and talk about bailiffs uh, court stenography and court sketch artists
0: the the triumvirate
1: yeah the, what we're calling the unsung heroes of the courtroom because they're there Uh, but you know, you're not really, ideally if they're doing their job right and they're not a celebrity bailiff, you're not even going to know they're there.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much true. They're kind of meant to kind of blend into the background is the judge who wants all the attention. Usually sometimes the lawyers, occasionally a bailiff who's
1: sometimes a lawyers, please. Um, (laughs) even a bailiff that's super busy doing things they're they're not showboating. You know what I'm saying?
0: No, they're not like twirling their gun or anything or being like, (laughs) hurry up, this is boring.
1: (laughs) That would be bad. But bailiffs are the least exciting, though, so I think we should start with them. Okay. So
0: bailiffs, it turns out, um, find their heritage, it goes back many, many centuries, actually. And they apparently originally started out in the UK as kind of legal overseers of a manor house for a feudal lord, basically.
1: Yeah, kind of property managers. Yeah. Uh, they could collect rent. They would sometimes do some accounting. They could collect fines. Uh, I think a little later on is when they were brought into the court system, but it was still sort of doing like sheriffy things.
0: Right. So, that I saw, Chuck, was the Bailey in France, where they were much more um, involved in courts and they actually had more power. They were more of a government official than just like a, somebody who served a feudal lord. Okay. And that's where this—it's its weird. It's almost like between medieval England and medieval France— between these two interpretations of what a bailiff was, it got all mixed together, shaken up. Some stuff fell off and some stuff stuck around. And then you said, okay, now we have the bailiff as we understand it today.
1: Right, which is you know kind of what we're going to concentrate on is the, the good old-fashioned American bailiff mm-hmm. sitting in the corner eat, eating apple pie <laughs> right. and ready to jump in there and crack someone's skull open or hand the judge a, a key piece of evidence Yep. or – arrest somebody. Yeah, because a bailiff
0: today is as far as people in America, and if you're in the UK, you're like, oh, I know what a bailiff is. It's somebody who, uh, there's a water bailiff or there's a, an eviction bailiff who deals with travelers who won't leave. Um, that's not really our understanding of bailiff in the United States. In the United States, we think of them almost exclusively as a officer of the court who is in most people's opinion, the the um, security for the court. Like, they wear a gun, they wear a badge, they're very frequently like a sheriff's deputy or a, a federal marshal or something like that. But apparently, there's way more to their job than just that that I, I had no idea about. Like, I really thought they were just there to stand up and look menacing. That was their, their <laughs> purpose. Uh,
1: yeah, there's about 18,000 and change in the United States. Uh, interestingly, it's not a... It's not an official title. Um it's just sort of as Livia says like a colloquial term mm-hmm. for someone who does this job. Um but you don't get titled bailiff. They just they just call you bailiff. Like you can be a, a a part-time bailiff in a small town but also be a marshal or a sheriff's deputy as your main job. Yeah, I
0: think even in in um in big cities that can be the case as well, but um but yeah, I think you're 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 definitely in a smaller area, or more rural area, where there's say less court activity. They're going to be like, "This is not big enough of a job for you. You need to do more. You need to pull your weight more than this."
1: That's right. So go back to and be a veterinary assistant. <laughs> right. Deliver the paper. Yeah. Do a little bailiffing. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to be sad.
0: mayor. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> So some of the other jobs that a bailiff has that I wasn't aware of, you said something about them handling evidence. If you are dealing with evidence in the court, you do not just hand it to the judge. You hand it to the bailiff, and the bailiff (laughs) hands it to the judge. That was a big one I didn't realize.
1: Yeah, you present the murder weapon, and you run at the judge with it. Isn't that how you do it? (laughs) Right. And the bailiff says, go ahead. Yeah, exactly.
0: Another one that I did know but didn't realize I knew is that the bailiff is usually the person who swears in a witness, uh, making them swear an oath on the Bible or the Constitution or something like that, depending on whether you're in a red state or a blue state. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, they're going to usher the jury in and out. They're going to usher the prisoners in and out. Uh, You know, a lot of times for these big trials, they'll have, you know, a, a few bailiffs working the room. Uh, they tell people to not smoke. They tell people, <laughs> they screen people when they come into the courtroom. They mm-hmm. have to, you know, you can't yell out loud. You can't do that. Not in this court. Like, the judge is going to admonish them. But then the judge is going to look over at the bailiff, and the bailiff's going to say, I know what that look means.
0: Right. Yeah, and I was going to say, a good bailiff doesn't even need to wag their finger like Dikembe Mutombo. They can just shoot a look, and you know mm-hmm. exactly what you're not <laughs> supposed to be doing anymore.
1: Uh, so, Livia did some research on... Uh, on a website that kind of broke down the, you know, like what makes for a good bailiff mm-hmm. if you're looking to do this as a job. And they they classified it as highly social with constant contact with others, including unpleasant and angry people and physically aggressive people. So you're not just the muscle, but you're definitely the muscle. Exactly.
0: Um, which means you're also providing security too, not just to the courtroom, but for like functions of the court. So like if the jury's sequestered, Your job as bailiff is to be one of the people guarding them. You're also kind of in charge of guarding the jury against themselves. So, like, if the jury's not supposed to be discussing the case at some point, you're supposed to be there making sure that they don't discuss the case. Get that look. Yeah, that look. Um, (laughs) You're just basically making sure everybody's following the rules uh, as much as possible.
1: That's right. And uh, I thought this was pretty interesting, kind of going back to the the feudal lord time, bailiffs still in the United States can be responsible for evicting people, uh, yeah. not just in England.
0: I saw that was Michigan and Ohio and I think Washington State all use yeah. bailiffs still, whereas other places use sheriff's deputies. But then, confusingly, in some places, a bailiff is a sheriff's deputy.
1: What do you get paid for doing this? A hundred grand? Easy. Not quite.
0: Uh, it depends. State governments pay much more. There's a median of almost sixty-nine grand a year, which is not bad. If you're on a local level, maybe forty-two grand for being a bailiff. What I didn't understand, and I didn't get a chance to look up, is if that's on top of your salary as a marshal or a, um, a sheriff's deputy or something like that.
1: Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if you part-time to bailiff if it might be more of an hourly thing. I see, but I don't know. I'm just guessing there. Um, but not, you know, it's not a bad scratch for a high school graduate, no. uh, or to get your GED. That's a, you know, it's a very good living. Uh, you can have a degree in criminal justice. I saw where, and we'll talk about celebrity bailiffs here in a sec. But uh, Judge Judy's bailiff Petrie is it Petrie Hawkins Bird mm-hmm. or Petrie? I have never watched the second of Judge
0: Judy. I it's haven't either. Point of pride in my life, so I don't know. But I'm going with Hawkins
1: Bird. He had a he had a uh, uh, he has a criminal justice degree, so he's legit,
0: right? Um, so, well, I mean, let's talk about celebrity bailiffs because there's basically two that come to mind, and one of them is Petrie or Petrie Hawkins Bird, who never, was Judge, never seen it either Judge Judy's um, bailiff for 25 seasons of Judge Judy. And I read, a like, a really sad little article. So, apparently, Judge Judy um, ran her course on CBS, got canceled, and said, I'm going over to IMB
1: TV, or
0: IMDb TV.
1: Yeah, which I didn't know was a thing.
0: No, I don't think anybody did. So, everybody's like, good, good move, Judge Judy. But <laughs> she didn't ask um, her bailiff of 25 years to come to her show and apparently didn't talk about it at all. And she had announced that she was doing this show... Before the end of her 25th season, so they filmed the entire 25th season together, and she just never mentioned it, that she was starting this other show and he wasn't invited. So, um, his feelings were definitely hurt, and I think he was a little bewildered and sad, and I think felt a little betrayed by that.
1: Yeah, I saw that, too. Uh, I saw that the reason she gave was that they can't afford your salary. Right. And he said, well, no one even talked to me about it. I probably would have taken less, but it wasn't offered. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he also said that in 25 years, she never, like, invited me to one celebrity shindig or one, like, social lunch. Oh, is that right? Yeah, but he said, but I wish her well. And, and, you know, he didn't want to drag her through the mud. Oh, yeah, no, he was a
0: class act. But he
1: basically was just saying, like, we were professional colleagues. We weren't friends. And she was just like, "I'm, I'm just moving on with a new cast. And it is what it is. Like I said, I never watched it. What I did watch... A lot, as a 10 to 12-year-old, hmm. was the people's court.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know why. I love that show. <laughs> I guess it was on right after it. school. <laughs> and I watched me a lot of Judge Wapner and a lot of Rusty Burrell, his bailiff.
0: And Rusty Burrell is the first celebrity bailiff and by far the most prolific celebrity bailiff of all time. Oh, yeah. He actually was a real bailiff in court for Los Angeles County. So was a bird. Oh, yeah, Bert, yes, you're right, you're right. He was from Manhattan. That's how he knew Judge Judy, was they worked in an actual court together before she had a TV show. Yeah. Um, Rusty Burrell worked in in L.A. County courts. He actually guarded the courtroom during the Manson trial. He was legit. Um, But he became the the celebrity bailiff on divorce court first from 1957 to 1969. And it just so happened that he worked with um, a, a lawyer by the last name of Wapner, during that time on that show. And that lawyer, Wapner, would go on to have a son named Judge Joseph A. Wapner who would become the People's Court judge, right?
1: That's right. Uh, And they worked together on People's Court and then uh, Judge Wapner's Animal Court. And he said most prolific. I was doing the math real quick because Bird was in there 25 years, but it looks like 26 years for Rusty. Oh, wow. That was close. 12 on divorce court, 12 on people's court, and boy, that animal court, that pushed him over the edge. Was that the shark <laughs> that got jumped? I don't know. I mean, it was two years. I bet it wasn't very good, but they count as two more years. So one more year than bird. Yeah. Uh, and apparently Wapner at one point in an interview said when they were originally doing uh, the people's court casting that the executive producer said they he wanted a sexy, give me a sexy girl as the bailiff. <laughs> but Wapner was like, no, let's let's use this real bailiff who my dad worked with.
0: Yeah. And he did, and the rest is history.
1: Should we take a break?
0: We should. We're going to take a break, everybody, and not keep you in suspense. We're going to come back and talk about court reporters. All right, Chuck. So court reporters are um, – you My said favorite. that bailiffs were the least interesting. <laughs> so court reporters are the
1: most interesting to you? I think court reporters and sketch artists are definitely interesting to me. But, boy, I love this court reporting section. I thought it was super interesting, uh, the machinery and the history mm-hmm. and the, the fact that they are play a real civic duty – uh, in recording history. And that's one of the first points Livia makes is in uh, Neo-Babylonian Mesopotamia, they kept legal records on clay tablets. And these weren't just like, uh, so we'll know what happened in this court case. It was but it was recording history like it was recording precedent and all that stuff was really important from the beginning
0: yeah for for the the mesopotamians the babylonians they weren't saying like we got to preserve this this amazing verdict about this land dispute for posterity like this was how like on this clay tablet was how somebody uh, could prove that no my family owns this land it was decided back in 555 BCE um and my family owns this land. Look at the cuneiform tablet.
1: Um, Let me get a hand truck and uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> right,
0: exactly. But the the it just turned out that that they kept such meticulous records and they survived and we figured out how to read cuneiform that um that that we learned a lot about the Babylonians and and how they dealt with law and agriculture. Um, and land disputes and traditions and customs and all that. Thanks to writing that down through legal documents. And we actually understand a lot about a lot of things based on court documents. Like, do you remember when we were talking about the Salem witch trials in that episode? hmm And we were saying, like, we, we understand it, very much because it was extensively documented, but it was documented through court cases. And there's just certain ways that you preserve facts and information when you're documenting it through a court record that's just not the same. It doesn't give you the full picture um, compared to, you know, rounding out with journals and diaries and stuff like that. But it's still way, way better than nothing. But what struck me as weird, Chuck, is that the idea of recording stuff like that, which seems like, of course you're going to do that, it got lost for a while.
1: Yeah, here in the United States during the colonial period, they were, like you mentioned, diaries and stuff. That's kind of what they relied on was, you know, whenever a lawyer or a judge might happen to keep personal notebooks about stuff, they would use that. But they didn't officially decree, like, this is something we need to do. Uh, I think it was the early 1800s That they said, no, this is a problem, and we can't just rely on whoever happens to want to take notes and save them. Uh, Judges, you need to start writing your verdicts down on paper at least and not just say them out loud. And the judges were like, "Uh." probably because judges didn't really feel like doing that is gave rise to actual court reporting.
0: Yeah, think about this, Chuck. You know how, like, emphatic, like, older men are when they just know they're right. Like, think about the cluster that would arise when some judge just knew he remembered a a verdict correctly even though it was totally wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. that was the state of the early American court system before they finally said, like, the beginning of the 19th century when they finally said, no, we we need to write this down. Like, if you put yourself in that situation, I can't imagine how many terrible outcomes there were from that.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was in 1804 Mm -hmm. when Massachusetts— Finally uh, enacted a law that said the governor has the authority to appoint someone, quote, learned in the law, nice. to obtain true and authentic reports of the uh, of the decisions. And 1817 was when Congress finally passed a law saying the Supreme Court, at the very least, has to have an official court reporter. Right.
0: I said, yeah, yeah. Supreme Court, you get on that too. Something I didn't realize that I thought was pretty interesting is that um, before that, people did document. Court reports is, is particularly of the Supreme Court, but they were just like freelance schmoes who showed up and sat there and documented it themselves to turn around and sell to yeah. whoever wanted that that kind of information. Yeah. So it was like um, it was it was willy nilly. I think is the the term for that.
1: And you might ask, who would want to buy that? Uh, you know, law schools, attorneys, yeah, bobbies,
0: <laughs> right,
1: constables,
0: uh, bailiffs.
1: Bailiffs, Baileys.
0: So finally, finally, at the end of the 19th century, everybody's like, all right, we're on board with this idea about actually recording the decisions of the court. And let's go a little further. Let's, let's record every single minute detail down to gestures, down to somebody sitting quietly when asked a question. And um, that's where court reporting was actually born, was in the end of the 19th century.
1: Yeah, 1899 was when the National Shorthand Reporters Association was formed. And I think this is one of the reasons this spoke to me a little bit, because I took a course in high school called speed writing.
0: Oh, well, there we go.
1: <laughs> speed writing, uh, type, typing, and um, I can't remember the third thing. It was one of those classes that, that you know, that you spent time doing three different things.
0: mm mm-hmm. How else would that have been? Balancing a checkbook?
1: That was in there. I don't know if that was that class but anyway. Speed writing was um no but I did take Comac. Um I did too. I wasn't it, it wasn't official shorthand as we're about to talk about. Right. It was it was a kind of shorthand though. Um and the funniest thing I remember from that class I don't know I don't think I should say her name. Okay. Is my old friend She would probably think it's funny and wouldn't care, but I won't say her name. But she sat next to me in class, and we used to always cut up. And she uh, did not learn – she learned the shorthand, but not such that she could take the test, which was basically a teacher would just dictate things. You would write it in shorthand Mm -hmm. and then transcribe it back in long form. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was really, really fast at writing. (laughs) So she would write it all in regular longhand (laughs) and then take the time – to transcribe it to shorthand, wow, and then turn them in in reverse order. That is, and that's somebody who wants an A. <laughs> <laughs> no, she got busted though, and that was technically cheating. Um, and I always felt bad for my unnamed friend. Yeah, I was I like, bad, she can write right really you? fast. Doesn't that count for something?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was. A, she should have gotten an A for effort at least. But yeah, if she went back and transcribed it using a book, that's that's cheating, Chuck. There's well, no, no, no she didn't use a book. Oh, well then, yeah, she should
1: have gotten an A. It, she just needed more time. It's like a, if you were in a German class and you had to just write down in English what they were saying in German, mm-hmm. writing the German first and then taking your time to transcribe it. You yeah, know no, I, mean?
0: I, I got what you're saying for sure. And I, I okay. dispute the teacher having an There's issue. There's no book
1: involved. Uh, but Shorthand is fascinating to me and has a very long history. Uh, going back to Cicero's enslaved servant, Marcus Tullius Tiro, mm-hmm. in 63 BCE, developed a Latin shorthand, uh, became known as Tyronian notes, and these were symbols. They were like 4,000 symbols, and they, uh, you know, it was basically the earliest version of shorthand.
0: Yeah, and apparently medieval monks got a hold of it and turned it into 13,000 symbols.
1: Of course they did.
0: So, um, yeah, because they had a lot of time on their hands. Plenty of time. Um, and there's like a, a a real value in developing shorthand, so there was all sorts of shorthand systems that were developed over the time. but as far as court reporting goes, it wasn't until a guy named John Robert Gregg uh, got into the mix in the late nineteenth century um, and he developed uh, a, a Gregg method of shorthand writing that uh, was so useful and so popular, he actually opened schools around the country. I saw him described as a tycoon, where basically (laughs) if you were a secretary, if you were uh, involved in anything that that involved transcribing or taking dictation or any job like that, you basically could not get the job until you had a Greg certificate. And so you had to go pay to take those classes and be trained. Like uh, it was just the way it was. And then along came Miles Bartholomew, who basically ruined everything for John Robert Gregg and his heirs.
1: No, not so. You would think that court reporter Miles Bartholomew, by inventing the first stenotype machine, mm-hmm. would have made uh, speed writing and shorthand go the way of the dodo, but that did not happen. Uh, and Livia points out very astutely that today there are still some court reporters who do pen and paper shorthand and ostensibly because, as we'll see, it's really hard to learn how to master that machine. And if you're really good at shorthand and you can write 200 words a minute using shorthand, then just have plenty of pens and paper and go at it. Yeah, if you can write 200 words a minute, you're
0: probably generally keeping up. But from the the stenography machines, or the steno um, is what they're called, machine shorthand, Like, you can, if you know what you're doing, you can do 300 words a minute. And that's when you're doing, like, some high-quality court reporting work.
1: Yeah, I get a feeling that the pen and paper might be some of these small-town courts that, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: their bailiff is doing all sorts of other jobs. Their (laughs) court reporter just has pen and paper. That's a giant mess, basically, in these small towns. I mean, but it
1: makes sense, you know. Uh, And before we move on to the steno, we do need to shout out the— That weird uh, gas mask-looking thing that you see sometimes—the steno mask, yeah—and that's the thing that you speak into, but they can't hear you speaking, and it records, you know, it records you saying the real words.
0: Yeah, I think my issue with that is not even the the shape or the look of the mask; it's the color of the material they use. It's always this weird clinical medical tan Mm -hmm. color. It's like, have you heard of yellow or blue? (laughs)
1: <laughs> i This is a job that I thought would might be fun as a retirement job for me, oh <laughs> yeah, uh, but I would not be able to do it without my own commentary, so it would just be a very low voice like. And and you know this uh, attorney objects. Oh God, this guy again. Right. He thinks he's all that. Oh man, the like, judge is mad. Yeah, I don't think we can. D- I don't think you can do that. I think you just need to say what people are saying. Well,
0: but that's a talent in and of itself. It depends. So I was looking into those steno masks, and I was like, so how does this work? So you're actually when you're wearing that mask, it's part part muffler, part silencer. Like the people around you can't hear you. That's why that mask is so big. But yeah, yeah. all you're doing is restating what the people are. You're you're doing vocal commentary. On what's going on. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But then you're like, well, wait a minute. Aren't there like transcriptions? Yes. That means that you have to go back, listen to what you recorded, type it up as you're listening and turn it into a clean transcript. So you're basically doubling the work with the steno, steno mask.
1: Oh, I thought it had. I thought it was a machine that just did it for you.
0: Now it does. But when oh, okay. Horace Wells invented that thing in World War II, it did not have that machine. Oh, well, so of it not. was a really cludgy process that yeah. took a lot of time. But the reason they did it is because it was so highly accurate, and it could produce so many like comments and details and observations that you might just miss that uh, if you were typing or writing shorthand. Right. So it was a lot of effort, it. but it seemed to be worth the effort.
1: Uh, Livia found a court reporter from Cleveland named Todd L. Peterson who wrote some stuff. I
0: think his name, sorry, it's Person.
1: Oh, did I say Peterson? Mm-hmm. I can see it's that. Person with two S's. Yeah. Uh, but he said basically, you know, if you're just talking about a regular person, they speak at about 180 <laughs> words a minute, mm-hmm. but then you have multiple people speaking, you have people talking over each other, mm-hmm. people interrupting each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can get up to 300 actual words a minute and if you 're one of the best typists around, you max out at you know in the in the low one hundreds basically, and uh, you also have to say who is speaking, do the name of the person you 're in there for you know eight to ten hours at a time Man. and it 's a brutal job uh, This machine is a, is a crazy piece of machinery because it doesn 't it 's not like a little tiny typewriter it is twenty two blank keys and a blank number bar. And you are playing it like a piano, basically. You're not saying you're not spelling out words one letter at a time. You're doing it all at the same time. Right. And it's 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 just a, a miracle how anyone ever learns how to use this thing.
0: Yeah, that that um that 110 word a minute typist is using a QWERTY keyboard like you and I use on our computers. And apparently um, because the rate of speech is 180 words per minute, that means that if you're typing on a normal keyboard, you start to fall behind at the first, after the first 10 seconds, and you just get oh, further yeah. and further behind, right? We can't do it. With that machine you're talking about, the stenography machine, with just 22 keys in that blank number bar, the way that it's set up is you've got the beginning consonant sounds that are being worked on the left hand, the left side. On your right hand, on the right side, are the ending consonant sounds, and in the middle are the syllables or the vo- the vowels that um, that you use your thumb to type that go in the middle of the words so that means because of the placement of the keys, you can press all these these keys at once and compose. a a word all at once rather than one letter at a time. No matter how fast you're typing on a QWERTY keyboard, you're still ultimately typing one letter at a time. With a stenography machine, you're typing an entire word all at once, basically.
1: Yes, and that's why in a courtroom, they can ask for the stenographer to read back, uh, the court reporter to read back something that's just been said, Mm -hmm. uh, which has been used in countless TV comedies and movie comedies. Throughout history, it's always a great gag when something dumb happens in court and the court reporter, in a very monotone, reads back what has just happened. Yeah. Like Airplane
0: Airplane 2. I can't remember what the joke was, but I know there was one. Did they do it in that? I'm sure they did.
1: It's a trope. It's been in a million movies. It's one of the great jokes.
0: So, one of the things that they've done is say, they said, okay, the stenography machine is amazing, and the people who who use these things and can type three hundred plus words a minute are are magical human beings they are, but um, we now have technology that can make these things even more outstanding, and that is that while you're typing uh, and apparently by the way, uh, people who are typing who are masters of a stenography machine um, they can they type with like ninety nine percent accuracy at three hundred words a minute. So it's just fantastic. Amazing. So they have these things plugged in now to a computer that's basically adding timestamps um putting the person's name after, like, next to who's speaking at any given point. Um, And then they take that and transfer it. They send it out to a real-time live feed to, like, the judge's computer, the lawyer's computers, um, so that everybody who needs one in the courtroom sees uh, the transcript as it's happening, basically, almost entirely in real time. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And then the one last um, technology I saw, Chuck, is that um, they have uh, speech to text now, so that now finally those steno masks are actually a valuable tool, and I believe they're starting to come back.
1: You have those on your phone?
0: Yeah, basically. But you just need a, a muffler silencer mask to attach to your phone, and you'd be you'd be right there for a court reporter.
1: Yeah, that those are remarkably accurate on the phone. I found.
0: Yeah pretty pretty interesting but there are some things where they kind of lack um like if you are if you weren't using just the court reporter some, some apparently some courts have said let's just set up some microphones in the court and have an ai transcribe this and and just not you know take the court reporter out of the whole thing and the stenomask get get rid of that ugly stenomask and they found that the ai can't do things like understand accents um especially if it's a thick accent when people talk over each other, it just throws its hands up. Um, if uh, if you want, if you ask an AI to uh, to read it back, that can be a problem. Or the AI can't ask you to repeat yourself. That's another one too.
1: So, if you are a court reporter, you're going to be making should be three hundred thousand dollars a year. Should be, for if sure. you ask me, to learn that machine because it takes. Uh, it's this, you know. I guess it depends on how fast of a learner you are, but uh, Mr. Person says six months to learn those keystrokes and another couple of years to really get good at it. I buy that. So that's that's a lot of time put in. Um, I think the median pay is about sixty-one grand as of May 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also get a little side hustle going doing uh, depots maybe, <laughs> uh, although I think most of those are usually video recorded because – my friend does that for a living. Oh, yeah? Um, but sixty-one grand should be more. That's all I'm saying.
0: I'll bet they do both. I'll bet they video record them, but I, I'm sure they have transcripts just because it's so much easier to scan a transcript to find what you're looking for.
1: Oh, most of his are just video. There's no court reporter in huh. there. that's interesting. It, it probably depends on the, again, the size of the case and the how much money you can throw at it. Right. Because
0: it costs dough. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: Uh, there is one person we should mention that... Uh, I kind of feel bad, but there is one part of this I did find funny. There was a New York State Supreme Court uh, court reporter, let's say this, we don't even name him, Okay, uh, who had a drinking problem and it screwed up pretty big at a few trials. And it's not funny because he had a drinking problem. The only funny part is I can imagine them (laughs) reading the transcript back at some point when he just repeatedly typed, I hate my job, I hate my job, Yeah, (laughs) over and over and over.
0: Yeah, and apparently, like, he did this on some really important um, trials. and Like, he just didn't take notes for a couple of days in some of them. And so now some guilty verdicts have been up for grabs. And they had, Chuck, they had reconstruction hearings where the judge brought the lawyers and the defendants and everybody back in and said, okay, who remembers what about this? Because we're missing some really important parts of the record, and we need to try to recreate it. Wow. And the thing that stuck me, too, was in this in a New York Post article on it, they interviewed his ex-wife. And she said it was that job that caused him to start drinking in the first place. And I'm like, amen, because I got to tell you, I can't think of too many more stressful jobs that don't involve an actual human life in your hands, like, say, like a, a heart surgeon or something, than a court reporter. You think? Yeah, man. The pressure to get everything right, not miss anything, not fall behind, and stay like that for eight hours at a stretch—you know, every day that you're working—that that sounds like a very high-pressure job.
1: I don't know. I think from that thing that that account you sent of uh, what they—it uh, was another insider account—was it seemed a little more zen to me than that mm. because what they he talked about was hearing but not listening. Yeah. So you kind of have to go into this fugue state almost, where you're hearing words, but you're not listening as if you're in a conversation with someone, because then you're investing, even if you're not trying to, you're probably investing emotionally, and that'll get you out of your rhythm, you just have to you just have to hear and let the words flow through your fingers. Yeah, yeah. Pretty interesting.
0: I think yeah, it is like a zen thing,
1: but I it Takes a certain kind of person for sure.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure not all of them can do it, but yeah, that would probably be the ideal way to do it for sure.
1: All right, let's take our last break and we're going to come back and talk about those scrappy little sketch artists right after this. <gasps> All right uh sketch artists are uh, maybe the most unsung because there aren't many of them um I was started to think about court sketch artists and you you don't have them for every trial it's not like a bailiff or a stenographer you only get a sketch artist in there when it's something the media is interested in right yeah and there's only so many of those trials there's only so many big cities uh, where those trials might be taking place so there aren't that many court sketch artists anymore that are working.
0: No. And, uh, yeah, the, the sketches that are produced, they're not ordered by the court. They're not part of the court record. They exist to, to for the media to have some sort of visual information to accompany reports of, like, court cases, which makes sense. But I never really thought about that before.
1: Yeah, and that's it. And it started because there weren't cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1859, it was John Brown's trial in Virginia, and there was a national magazine that sent illustrators to cover this. And that was kind of where the whole thing started. Um, When cameras did come around, they put them in the courtroom (laughs) and uh, the trial of the century, the first trial of the century, uh, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping with Bruno Hauptmann in 1935 was chaos with those huge cameras and flash bulbs and court reporter and uh, photographers just like apparently climbing on tables to get good shots. It was just, it was a zoo in there. So he said he couldn't even get a fair trial because of these camera people. And even though that argument didn't work, uh the ABA said, you know what, no more cameras in the courtrooms. Um generally, this is the American Bar Association, so they don't they can't lay down the law. Right. But usually, I mean some are televised and sometimes there's cameras. I know we all watched the OJ trial. But most times you're going to see a sketch come out on the 5 o'clock news.
0: Yeah, I mean, because the ABA said there shouldn't be cameras in the courtroom, a lot of states and the federal government said, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And so that actually was one of those rare instances where, like, the predecessor came back in style. And uh, I guess in the 60s, TV news was not a huge thing until the civil rights era, um until the uh assassination of JFK and the ensuing assassination of Jack Ruby um th- uh, like it, the 60s is kind of supercharged the reason for there to be uh TV news and um the 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 people who were doing the news needed like if they couldn't get cameras in the courtroom they still needed some visual and so that gave uh like a real boost to to courtroom sketch artists as well
1: yeah i think the jack ruby trial is a man named uh howard brody very famously sketched that one. And he went on to do RFK and MLK's assassinations. Then there was a man named Bill Robles who's done some pretty famous ones. Mm-hmm. I like his stuff. He did the uh, Manson trial. And if you look at those sketches online, he kind of has a Ralph Steadman quality to him. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff.
0: The Is that the guy who did the uh, Manson leaping at the judge? Yes. Yeah. So... um so, yeah, so, like, I think there are courtroom sketch artists that have kind of made names for themselves, especially among the media. But what they will do is sit there and, and you know, draw um, the <laughs> scenes in a court. Believe it or not, that's what these sketch artists are doing all day. They just sit around and draw. But the, wow. but it's, it's harder than it sounds because very frequently there are um, – there's not a lot of visual action going on in, like, the courtroom – it's very. It's not rare necessarily, but it's not happening every moment. So you can't count on
1: Charles Manson to always be jumping over a table.
0: Exactly. So the the court the court sketch artist has to basically have a real eye for nuance and facial expression, and and to figure out how to capture visually a, a subtle exchange that can maybe change the momentum of a court case or something like that, and then present it. Then they have to do it in a way that looks good. And they have to do it quickly. And then when they're done, they have to run out Well, up until probably the last few decades. They had to run outside and the TV news crews would film the um, the sketches that they made for that day for the evening news.
1: Yeah, and, you know, they don't have a special chair like the stenographer does or a special place to stand. I mean, I think in some courts they accommodate them as best they can. Sure. I think there was this one article from Mental Floss where – one of the court reporters, uh, Vicki Ellen Beringer, said that uh, they would give her a place to sit sometimes in the jury box if there was room. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're just out there with everyone else, and you're, you know, you might have somebody with a big giant head in front of you. You gotta you gotta really work on the fly, and like you said, work fast. Uh, I mentioned it's uh, not a whole lot of people doing it. I think Robles uh, was interviewed like three or four years ago and said he's working a lot, but he's just one of two. In Los Angeles. So, and I thought that just sounded astounding. But again, if you think about the media covered trials, there just aren't that many of them. So you don't need hundreds and thousands of sketch artists around the country.
0: Yeah. Just to pick up work, sketch artists are becoming bailiffs.
1: <laughs> the bailiffs like got the gun in one hand and sketching on the other. <laughs> it's
0: tough, man. It's tough out there. So, um, one of the, uh, the, the, places you can get work if you're a reliable sketch artist is by drawing the Supreme Court because you just aren't going to get a camera in there. Like anybody no. who listens to NPR News is familiar with Nina Totenberg's like play-by-play of um, Supreme Court arguments and discussions. And she's kind of like a verbal sketch artist. But um, the point is, is you're, there's not any media allowed in the Supreme Court um, chambers. Yeah.
1: Just today, with the uh, abortion proceedings, Mm -hmm. I was looking at pictures. I saw some last night of the sketch artist, and it was probably done by uh, Arthur Lean. Arthur may be the only person doing for the Supreme Court, but I know that uh, he does the SCOTUS blog and uh, for NBC. So uh, maybe they they probably let more than one in for something this big. But apparently, it's uh, court reporters have round, or I'm sorry, um, sketch artists. Brownlee said it's a lot easier to draw someone like Charles Manson than it is to draw some just sort of normal-looking normo, like, normcore like uh, norm. I
0: don't know, like Tom Brady or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was very famous. Jane Rosenberg <laughs> sketched Tom, Ber- Tom Brady. I almost said Tom Barringer, um <laughs> during the uh, DeflateGate uh, proceedings and. And it was, you know, Tom Brady is a traditionally a handsome person, and he looked uh, a little bit like Lurch. Yeah. And, and it became a meme, and it was pretty funny.
0: The best one I saw, the best meme I saw was um, that sketch of Tom Brady photoshopped onto the Hunchback from Hunchback at Notre Dame, the Disney movie. Oh, really? It was perfect. <laughs> I
1: mean, it fit perfect. She got a lot of press out of that.
0: She did. The other best one I saw was uh, that sketch of Tom Brady's head on the Potato Jesus meme.
1: Oh, uh, right, right.
0: It, it fit pretty well, too.
1: Uh The final little thing here that Livia found, which I thought was pretty great, and a testament to uh, how good of work that she's doing for us so far, but she, she found that they uh, – sometimes attorneys, and this doesn't surprise me, they will buy some of these sketches, I guess, sometimes either if it's a famous case or earlier in their career – and you know, have it framed. So, you know, just I think it's just sort of a, a symbolic thing because mm-hmm. they're they all, even though they have different styles, you can always tell a courtroom sketch. Oh, and yeah. I think to have a framed courtroom sketch of yourself when you finally make it as an attorney is probably a pretty big deal.
0: Yeah. Especially if you're standing and pointing at the accused. Yeah. Something really dramatic like that. Sure. I've always wanted uh, the Wall Street Journal to do a piece on us so we could get a drawing of us like that. That's a really like, um, um, Easily recognizable type of drawing, too.
1: Yeah, totally. Come on, Wall Street. Or, you know, Mad Magazine, maybe? It's defunct, Chuck. I know, but this guy's still draw. (laughs) They can bring him out of retirement. I want Mort Drucker. I think he passed away, but, oh, God, to be drawn by Mort Drucker. That would be pretty amazing.
0: Or I'd take Jack Davis, too. He did the UGA football um, guy in the 70s. Oh, that's right.
1: I got that uh, Coke bottle on my bar
0: still. There you go. Maybe someday, Chuck commemorative Coke bottle. Uh, Well, since Chuck said commemorative Coke bottle, I think that's it, uh, which means it's time for a listener mail, everybody.
1: I'm going to call this another dentistry email. This is from Kayla. Uh, Hey, guys, really enjoyed your episode about dentistry. I'm currently a fourth-year dental student in the U.S., graduating in May, and I want to add a couple of things here. Uh, Green Black was one of the fathers of dentistry that you mentioned, but you didn't say much about him. Green Black, commonly known as GV Black in the dental realm, invented the pedal-driven dental drill and also outlined the best way to prepare a tooth for cavity filling, which is still the method used today. Uh, And secondly, since you focus on the history of dentistry, I wanted to mention Saint uh, Apollonia, Mm -hmm. the patron saint of dentistry. In the year 249, Apollonia, a deaconess, was beaten for refusing to renounce her faith and the beating caused all of her teeth to shatter and fall out. She then elected to be burned alive instead of renounce her faith and even jumped into the fire herself. After her death, she was made the patron saint of dentistry and toothaches, and there's even a painting of her in the Louvre. And this is uh, from Kayla, who was just introduced to the show last year by her brother and now is a big fan.
0: Nice. Thanks, Kayla. Uh, Good Good luck luck with dental school. school. Yeah, for sure. That's that's one of those examples I I knew of both of those. They just didn't make it in the show. And it's just so excruciating to be called out about those later on.
1: It's okay to miss things.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Kayla, and good luck with dental school. Uh, and thank you for writing in, and welcome to the show. Right, Chuck? That's right. Uh, well, if you want to be like Kayla, you can send us an email to StuffPodcasts at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeart Radio, visit the iHeartRadio app.